0: You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Wilson. I don't know about ladies. Um, I mean, The gospel is so good, isn't it? Um, you know, I think about uh, where you guys have been all week school, work. And uh, so, so much of the time we're tempted to find our identity in performing, right? Like how we perform, get a grade, get paid. And uh, I love coming here with you guys because um, maybe if it slides off, if we, if we mess up a song a little bit or if we like say the creed a little wrong, we're not performing. We're, we're here to celebrate the reality that someone has performed for us. And we're just here to just uh, enjoy the grace of God together and give God our best, uh, but just enjoy his performance, Jesus' performance on our behalf. So I'm uh, so happy to be here with you guys, and I'm sure I'm going to need some grace doing this sermon as well uh, in my, uh, probably some missteps, who knows, who knows, we'll see. Uh, so excited to be moving to Acts with you guys, and uh, our, our, move, our um, series called Movement, if you're new. And the last couple chapters have been like an action movie. Uh, Paul and Barnabas go on this missionary journey, it's action-packed, there's churches planted, there's a big missionary journey, there's riots, there's healings, there's stonings, attempted murders. And um, man, it's been, it's been um, exciting. And this week, uh, we're just going to change up the pace a little bit. And uh, really what we're going to do is we're going to unpack a church business meeting on circumcision. Uh, I didn't want the word to get out because I thought we might have to like limit capacity if people knew that was going on uh, here this morning. So, <laughs> but in all seriousness, this actually is an incredibly pivotal point. Uh, the narrative here in Acts slows down because it's a really pivotal point for the church Uh, And from Acts, and you and I, if we are a Christian, actually, if you're not a Christian, are still benefiting from the effects of Acts 15 today. And as the gospel spreads to all kinds of new people, this is what happens a big theological debate or controversy arises around this question What do you really need to be saved? Another way you could ask that is what is the minimum bar for becoming a Christian? Or uh, what's Christianity in its most irreducible form. And this is a big deal because the answer to this question threatens to split this early church in two, into two different rival factions. And I don't know about you, but when I first became a Christian and I started reading about the unity and the oneness of the church, I really struggled because I looked at the number of denominations and I looked at Christians that seemed to be fighting a lot and I really didn't know what to do with it. I, I really just had this attitude, and maybe you've been here too, of like, do we even need to talk about this stuff? Like, all this theology and this doctrine, like, isn't it just for kind of the, uh, the, the ivory tower theologians? Like, why do we need to even uh, disagree and, and, and uh, go back and forth over these types of things? And that might be uh, you here today. You might be thinking that too. But I, I want you to see, one thing I hope you see today is that uh, Christian theology or doctrine impacts each one of you. Uh, when an engaged couple comes and sits in my office, and they're disagreeing about roles in what their marriage should look like. They care about theology and doctrine. Uh, if you disagree with another Christian about what alcohol looks like in the life of a Christian, you care about theology and doctrine. Uh, if you disagree about how do I engage with a politically volatile issue right now, which there are plenty to choose from, you care about theology and doctrine. Uh, How you engage with a coworker of a different religion? You care about theology, and you care about doctrine or theology, and all of those issues. You actually have a position. You have an opinion. You have a stance, whether you want to admit it or not. And that stance will put you in disagreement with other Christians and with other people. And so today we really struggle with two realities in the church that I want to unpack for you. One, man, we are called to to hold really firmly a conviction from God's word about what is true. And yet, we're also called to this deep, pervasive unity that spans cultures and languages and time and experience and ethnicity. And this passage is so relevant because uh, it teaches us how do we fight over the right issues, and then how do we be flexible in the right ways? And each one of you tends towards one or the other. I know you do. Each one of you is either a fighter or a flighter. Some of you may have loved to fight about everything. Like, you guys know Those Christians, or maybe you're one, maybe you can, whoever you came with, maybe you can look at them. You're a fighter or a flighter. Maybe uh, maybe tell them which one they are. But some of you, man, would want to fight about everything. You could fight about the paint color of this building, you could fight about music styles, you could fight about politics, how we're gonna school our kids. Everything is a potential battlefield for you. And some of you, and actually I think this is probably more of you now, some of you won't fight about anything. Uh, you always want the middle road, you always want the way of harmony. Um, I tend towards that side. Some of you, I could come up to you after this worship service and be like, hey man, God really spoke to me during the worship service and he said, go take all your savings and go gamble it at Horseshoe Casino. And you'd be like, man, you do you, bro. God bless you as you go. And I'd be like, please, please fight with me if I come say that to you. Please disagree with me if I do something like that, right? So whether you fight all the time or whether you never fight at all, this is the point, the gospel is gonna be muddied or diluted down. So we need to know which hills to die on and which hills do we concede. Uh, And this passage gives us this awesome and really happy framework between two extremes, this place of wisdom and courage and love that's going to best serve the church as we love one another and and see the mission of God go forward in a really fractured time. And if you're new, uh, you've probably heard our missions to display and declare the gospel. And that gospel is the best thing we have to give to each other. It's the best thing we have to give this world. It's the best thing we have to give this city, and Satan hates it. And so the gospel here is coming under attack, not from outside like we've seen in previous chapters, but from inside, two Christian uh, arguments, arguing parties coming together. And I want you to get this, Christian. If you are a Christian in this room, this is my big idea, that you are called to defend the gospel. Every Christian is called to defend the gospel in various ways. Uh, I want to go through these three ways of how we defend the gospel. I think this passage is going to show us um, that we defend the gospel. We defend gospel clarity. We defend gospel unity. And we defend gospel declaration. First two points are going to be longer than usual. First point is going to be, pro- or third point is going to be probably the shortest point I've ever done. So, uh, fasten your seatbelts. We'll, uh, we'll do point one. Defending the gospel means defending gospel clarity. So, our last chapter, 14, Orlando Preached, ended with how. Uh, verse 27, how God had opened a door to the Gentiles. After this long mission strip, tons of trials, Paul and Barnabas shared with the church about all these people, never heard the name of Jesus before, were flocking to Jesus, churches were started, tons of room for praise. The the Jesus movement's not saying local, it's going to the nations. Uh, This would be like imagining Pastor David and Alyssa, they come back from being in Japan for two years. And they come back and like, man, we went to a city where no one knew the name of Jesus and all of a sudden, hundreds of people know Christ. Five churches were planted. How do you think we would respond if David and Alyssa came up here and shared that? Yeah, we'd be a little pumped, right? We'd be a little pumped. I might even, I'm, I'm not that charismatic. I'm not even running some laughs around here. I would be excited, right? We'd be celebrating like crazy, or I hope we would. But then imagine there are just a few killjoys in the back that just stand up and go, excuse me, sir, um, have, uh, have they stopped watching R-rated movies yet? And how would we react? I'd be like, come on, bro. Like, that's, like, that's so minuscule. Can we focus on like, the celebration here? And, and that's really what's happening. Most of these Christians are so glad celebrating these new Christians, but there's a small faction of Christians, of Jewish Christians, that are really grumpy. And this is what they say. Chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea. They were teaching the brothers. So these Christian Jews were teaching these new Gentile, non-Jewish Christians. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, um, before... Jewel, you got those um, circumcision diagrams ready? Yeah? Okay. So before we get into circumcision... Just kidding, we're not... (laughs) So so, Don't leave. (laughs) So I need you to know, guys, the issue here is not ultimately about cutting a piece of skin or not. That's not the issue. The question here is... And what is at stake is what does God require of you to be saved? And basically, some of these Jewish Pharisee Christians are preaching that to be a Christian, you need more than Jesus. You need faith in Jesus and to be culturally and naturally, uh, nationally Jewish. The Christian Pharisees, they taught a Jesus plus theology for salvation. Jesus plus Jewish cultural appropriation. Jesus plus obeying the rituals and customs in the Torah, Jesus plus circumcision. At the core, here's what they're saying. Jesus is not fully sufficient in himself, and so Moses needs to come in and finish off what Jesus cannot complete in you. And you've got to understand, guys, what a big moment in history and what a big issue this is. This has the potential to blow up the church in two ways. One, it's a threat to the unity of the gospel. So if you picture, if this teaching was allowed to continue, there would have been this schism in the early church. There would have been a, two cultural churches, a Jewish church and a Gentile church, a first-class church and a second-class church. And secondly, it would have been a threat to the clarity of the gospel. The gospel is such good news like we're going to talk about because it's grace alone that saves, not performance. And when you start adding cultural or moral appropriations or requirements to it, the power is gone. The power to save is diluted. Uh, Imagine if you were doing mission work in the Middle East and you said, hey, um, Middle Eastern friend, to come to know Jesus, you need to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior by faith, and plus you need to kneel before a picture of President Biden and say the Pledge of Allegiance every day. Like, Do you see how that cultural appropriation would be an issue for the gospel and distract from the clarity of the gospel? So it's not an overstatement to say this issue put the future of the church in really grave danger. And guys, this danger still exists today among us and among churches. Uh, There's tons of examples. It can look like you need Jesus plus being baptized in our church to be saved. In the Roman Catholic Church, it can look like Jesus plus sacraments to be saved, Jesus plus adhering to some moral framework to be saved. Jesus plus church attendance. Jesus plus quiet times. Jesus plus, plus the Christian lingo. Hey, bro, you want to minister to our hearts and get fellowship later? Um, Jesus plus voting a certain way. Now, before you distance yourself from this, how dare those Pharisee Christians, I can't believe they would do that. Hold, hold up a second. Let me bring it home to you for a minute or at least try to, because if you're a Christian, you really do struggle with Jesus plus theology, I guarantee you. Your natural tendency is to come before God and to try to add on to the gospel, to try to, say, try to make yourself acceptable and commendable before God with something more than Jesus. There's lots of ways we can try to do that, but one question that I find helpful for me is, uh, what Christians do I look at, and am I really quick to condemn? Um, quick to be judgmental of, quick to other because of some stance they take. Like, um, I asked someone this question and they said, Man, how a Christian spends their money. I look at how a Christian, so, man, how, you can never be a Christian and buy X. Do you see how it's a Jesus plus theology? You're not commended by God because of how you spend your money, right? Even though it's something we need to think carefully about. Or a popular one right now is is how someone votes. I could never believe and understand how someone can be a Christian and vote X. You might have had that thought before. That's some Jesus plus theology. We subtly add these things on top of Jesus that we think make us more acceptable before God. And in a kind of a uh, self-righteous, self-exalting way, we cut them down by the things that we find acceptable in ourselves and uh, before God. The problem is (laughs) the enjoyment of the gospel ourselves is diluted and in the world doesn't see the gospel clearly in us. So how do we respond when we find, when we uncover Jesus plus theology inside us and inside the church? Let's look at how the church responds. Verse two, Paul and Barnabas, they had no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Paul and Barnabas step in to have no small dissension. I don't know if you can catch that. That's like sarcasm. You know some sarcasm in the Bible? It's hard sarcasm. He's saying they are throwing down. The message says Paul and Barnabas were up on their feet at once in fierce protest. Fierce protest. Okay, if you've been with us in Acts. You, you get this from Paul, but Barnabas, his name means encourager, hugger, sweet, walk with you through the trials in life. Barnabas is taking his gloves off and ready to throw down on this issue, Right? And on top of that, he's saying, hey, guys, travel 250 miles, no small feat in that day, to go back to Jerusalem, gather all the church leaders, which is a big feat in that day too, no planes, to get together. And we need to really discuss this question. We are going to find an answer together for this question. So they fiercely stand their ground, and they fight over this issue, and they organize this huge council. And guys, I think it shows they are unapologetically fighting for the clarity of the gospel. The gospel is such good news because it says we are saved by our sin, by grace alone, through Christ alone, or through faith alone, through Christ alone. And if you add man-made truths to that reality, you're losing the gospel itself. Uh, In a sense, gospel math goes like this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If you add anything to that nothing side, you lose the gospel, it's just receiving it, receiving Jesus' wealth as a, a grace, as a gift. Uh, this made me think of about three years ago when we bought our home. We were a little tight, just spent most of our money. And uh, I got, a, a, che- I got a, um, a letter in the mail from Baltimore City, and it just said Baltimore City. And you could tell it was official, and that's never a good letter, right? It's probably a bill. Like, I had a $600 water bill the other day. That's what it looked like. And uh, I opened it up. It was a check for $3,500. It said just tax rebate. That's all it said on it. And so I called up my loan officer, my real estate agent, like, dude, why, why would I get this check? And they're like, I have no idea. You shouldn't have that check. You definitely don't deserve that check. I've never talked to anyone that's gotten that check before. And they were like, you should deposit. It. <laughs> so I was like, well, maybe I should call somebody first. So anyways, I called I call the city. They're like, yeah, it's yours. What'd I do? Deposit that sucker. And uh, God's grace, it was really helpful. And friends, the gospel is that we were living in eternal or uh, spiritual bankruptcy, spiritual debt, and that the only thing you did was just to go and open your mailbox and find Jesus's grace on your doorstep. Find the wealth of him uh, as a check in your mailbox, and you did not deserve it. You shouldn't have had it. You weren't pursuing it, but God in his grace gave you his wealth through faith in Christ. And so, Christian, we aren't saved by a Jesus plus something theology. It was all Jesus and nothing you did. As a church, we need to stand for the, char- the clarity of this gospel. We can't budge, we can't give up ground because it is the most precious gift we have to give to one another. It's the most precious gift we have to give this city. I mean, really think about it. If we, if we lose the gospel, what do we really have um, to offer people, really? Really? Like, a good social scene, yes, we have that. Some good work in the city, sure. But, like, if we lose the gospel, we lose the greatest and deepest hope we have to give people. And for some of you, this idea of standing your ground, telling someone they're wrong, fighting fiercely, sounds incorrect, sounds, sounds uh, immoral even, maybe, to some of you. And you've bought into our culture's narrative that says the only way you can be wrong is if you tell someone they're wrong. But I want you to listen to how Paul fights for the gospel In in this situation, he writes about the situation in Galatians. This is how he fights for the gospel. Listen to this. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. He's talking about those same Jewish Christians here. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one you preached, let him be accursed. As we've said before, and now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He says for two, just two times just to make sure we get it. So Paul's not saying curse everyone, but what he is saying is do you have a category like Paul for those to correct those that are preaching something and teaching something contrary to the gospel that we're called to protect and defend? When a friend posits a claim that Christianity is basically the same as all other religions, and it's just about being moral before God and being a better person, and that's why we're here. When your family member or coworker claims that just all good people go to a better place. When a neighbor with the title Christian says that there's lots of ways to get to heaven, that people are really naturally good and their sin's not really a big deal. Can you winsomely, do you have a framework to winsomely and courageously step in and defend the gospel and correct It. Guys, this is so important. We cannot reduce our gospel witness to just some generic niceness that just affirms everyone's opinion. And here's why because the world is perishing, and how how many hopes do they have? They have one hope. One hope. So, would we love the world enough? Have the courage to preserve it for them. And if you're not a Christian here, man, I know this probably sounds uh, arrogant, and I get that. I get that that can sound arrogant. But this gospel we've just described, I've just described, has changed my life, has changed our church's life, and I, we believe is the biggest hope for every person in this world, the most relevant hope for any person in this world, the hope that promises hope in death and disease and violence and abuse and racism and shame. There's no greater hope that we can give you than the gospel, unaltered, unadulterated. So we love you enough not to give up that hope. So we're not trying to be divisive or contentious, but we stand. We don't move. Uh, I love, that's a good picture of what Martin Luther did. Um, You know, before he started the Protestant Reformation, he was hoping to reform and change the Catholic Church, not ditch out and leave the Catholic Church. And he was before a church council defending his claims, claims that Christ alone saves and makes you right before God. And in his defense, this is the last thing he said. He says, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God help me. And Christian, I pray that's what we would do. Uh, because because of this statement, though, Luther, he was actually thrown out of the Catholic Church, uh, and multiple attempts were made on his life for making the simple claim that we get to enjoy today as Christians. So we stand our ground for the clarity of the gospel. It's a hill that we always die on. Second point, defending the gospel means defending gospel unity. Defending gospel unity. Really important, the early church is not just seeking to get the gospel right. They're seeking to get it right together. Remember earlier I said one of the grave threats of this chapter was um, a schism in the church, a separate Jewish, a separate Gentile church. And you might think that and be like, eh, I mean, not ideal, but like, what's the big deal, right? The big deal is because the unity of the church is essential to the mission of the church. You've probably heard me quote this before, but I love Jesus' prayer for us. During his life, he prayed for you and me in our church He says that he prays for us he says that we may all be one just as you father are in me and I in you that they also may be in us and that's a lot of pronouns here's the point so that the world may believe that you have sent me so Jesus is saying the unity you have is not just for you inside it's actually for those outside of you outside of us in a world that fragments over all kinds of fault lines, the church's unity is meant to be this stark contrast in a picture that the living and reigning King Jesus is working and alive in us. I've seen this play out in so many ways. I was at a conference um, where I met and befriended in an Indian and a Pakistani that were best friends because of the gospel. If you don't know, those are two groups of people that typically despise one another. Um, this is the gospel power that helps uh, a triple boosted person and an anti-vaxxer share one another's burdens and pray for one another. That's that's miraculous power. It's the kind of unity that helps uh, a white boy like me with no uh, style and a very bland style get some help from an African brother and sister on my shirt selection. Um, praise God. And he cares about the unity of his church so much because he died for it. Jesus died to demolish, Ephesians 2 says this, demolish hostility between groups of people to make the church one bride. Jesus does not have multiple brides. He's not a polygamist. So if we care about Jesus, if we care about his sacrifice, then we're going to care about the unity of his people. But you guys know the problem. We're, we're called to hurl firm convictions about lots of things, But we come from all kinds of backgrounds, experiences, baggage, brokenness, cultures. So how does a global, diverse, messy people that often love to fight or never fight find unity? And I love this because this Jerusalem Council helps us answer the question, how can a messy people live out the unity Jesus prayed for while holding firmly to our conviction about the gospel? And there's three things I want to point out from this council that I think are really going to help us, that have really helped me. And firstly, it's that we remember our common foundation. So uh, after some initial debate at the council, we're at the council meeting now, Peter, uh, who Jesus said, I'll build my church. Uh, Peter, you're the rock that I'm going to build my church on. He's like the original rock before Dwayne, smell what the rock is cooking, Dwayne. Rock, um, he stands up, and this is what he says. Acts 15, verses 8 through 11. He says, brothers, You know that in the early days, God made a choice among you, that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. Do you see the the common foundation Peter keeps going back to again and again? He's reminding all all these people, the most important foundational things that are true about us are true about these Gentile Christians as well. We have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same literal presence of God living and working and moving in us. We have all had our hearts cleansed by faith in Jesus. All our hearts were filthy, dirty. All our moral acts were just sweeping and pushing dirt around until Jesus came in and cleaned up our hearts through faith in Him. We're all saved by grace alone. There's no hope for anyone, no matter their background, outside of the name of Jesus. So that's what Paul's saying, or Peter's saying. And friends, every Christian you meet has these same realities true of them. The most important things about you, the things that define you to your deepest reality, are true of every Christian, and that's what unifies us. That's what, um, I, I was really reminded of this when Jen and I, in our early days of marriage, we traveled to Sierra Leone for a mission trip, and I got off the plane, or I got off the boat, and uh, I met a pastor, Pastor Corgi. He came up and gave me a huge hug, and right away, grabbed my hand. We held hands as we walked through the village, and he showed me around town. I was like, it's a little uncomfortable at first, but uh, that's how you express friendship, and, um, man, I actually kind of liked it, though. I think we should start a, a, a friendship hand-holding movement here at RCC. Anyways, this guy embraced me as a brother. We just met. He didn't know anything about me except that I was a Christian, that I had the Holy Spirit, that I had my heart cleansed by faith in Christ, and I was there to partner with him in mission. And we were closer. We had more of a friendship. We had more in common than my closest relative that doesn't know Jesus right away. Oftentimes I'm in conflict with, uh, or I'm meeting with people and counseling about people that are in conflict. And a lot of times I'll, I'll go to this reminder for them. I'll be like, hey, I know you're in conflict with so-and-so, but man, would you remember where you're headed? That you are gonna be holding this person's hand in, in heaven, at the throne of Jesus, worshiping him together. So can you let that heaven reality try to inform where you're at now, even amongst your disagreement and your hurt? And so we find unity. We remember our common foundation. The second thing, James is going to help us uh, that we can reason from our common scriptures. Uh, so it's James, uh, the half-brother of Jesus. He is seen as kind of the leader of the Jerusalem church here. He gets up and he says this, fourteen to eighteen. Uh, Simon, or Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with these words of the prophets, agree, just as it was written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will build its ruins, and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known. So James is saying this, guys, look, look at your Bible. Open your Bible. God has said this. This is not a surprise. Like, he said it over and over in many places. The Gentiles are gonna be one with us. They're gonna be worshipers of God alongside us. So he's really just saying, I'm interpreting my reality that I'm seeing through the revelation of God's Word, interpreting reality through the revelation of God's Word. And I think this probably should go without saying, but I think it needs a reminder that this should be our knee-jerk reaction every time we're confronted with a tough issue together as Christians or disagreement. Together, let's look at reality and let's interpret it through the revelation of God's Word. And I think too often we get unnecessary disunity and conflict because we interpret reality through our experience or our hurt. Uh, our tradition, uh, our voice of our culture, or maybe just our own just rationale even. And there are so many tough issues that Christians can come in and disagree on. Um, but our first response should be, open up God's word. What does it say? Let's go from there. Even on tough issues around us. So on a tough issue that you may, that's going on right now, like in abortion, we don't first look to the experience or the experience of a friend, although those are important, We don't first look to prevailing winds of culture, we don't first look to just what makes sense to us, but we open up God's word and we see what it says, and then we go from there. So after these arguments, uh, James, kind of the leader of the church, he's going to make his pronouncement on what he thinks he should do. There's really two things here. Uh, First, he says, therefore, my judgment, we should not trouble the Gentiles who turn to God. Great decision. Uh, Unity is preserved, right? Right? Uh, First and importantly, James says, let's not trouble these non-Jewish Christians. They only need faith in Christ to be saved. They don't need circumcision. They don't need the cultural rituals. All they need is faith in Christ. It's the gospel that cleanses our hearts alone. Great, nail it, James. But he doesn't stop there. And I think this is really important. Uh, There's a third point to unity that I want to point out. And he's going to say, he's going to show us that we need to exercise a common flexibility where possible. Listen to how James continues. He doesn't stop write to the Gentiles two abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, and from what's been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has in every city those who proclaim him for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. All right, this takes a little unwrapping here. So first time I read this, I was like, huh, that seems weird. Faith in Christ alone. Oh, by the way, do all these things. You guys see the, right? And so it takes a little unpacking. You're probably thinking, did did James just negate himself? Did he just contradict what he just said? And obviously the answer is no, but it takes a little unpacking for us. What is happening is he has established that faith through Christ alone saves, but he is also saying and appealing to the Gentile Christians to abstain from certain things to preserve community with Jewish Christians. Commentators really generally agree that all four of these things he just asked them to abstain from are cultural Jewish rituals that Jews were following as part of their worship, part of their Jewish religion. Even sexual morality, most commentators think that's from Leviticus 18, talking about irregular marriages, not just general sexual immorality. And so here's, here's the main point, guys. There was a practical problem when these different groups of Christians came to get together to have table fellowship, to love one another, to share burdens together, to hang out, to do life together. If a Jewish Christian wanted to go over to a Gentile Christian's house, they literally could not eat what was on the table. They would, be, uh, they would feel unclean. Their conscience would be convicted. It would be like if you were a uh, convinced uh, vegan, and man, I just was like, man, I want to get to dinner with you, and we're having my favorite, we're having lamb tacos. You in? And you're, you're, with cho- you're faced with a choice, right? I can keep saying no, because I really am feeling convinced I, I should not eat lamb co- tacos. Or you could say yes, and you could come grit your teeth and eat lamb tacos, eat baby sheep, and you could feel terrible about yourself. That wouldn't be very loving of me to you, right? But what do I do? I abstain from delicious meat to eat kale with you all night. (laughs) And I do it with joy. I do it with a smile on my face, with a little kale on my teeth. The the point is, guys, is we can talk about unity all day, but if it if we are have things in our life, if I'm not accommodating you, then it's just pretty nice words. It doesn't like play out in our lives, right? It doesn't play out in our actions. So the Jerusalem Council, they're inviting Gentiles to exercise sacrificial flexibility. It is sacrificial, right? I bet, man, Aphrodite's butcher shop was up the street. It probably had the best fillets. Like, I'm sure they were bummed about missing out on some of this stuff, right? But he's saying exercise practical flexi- or sacrificial flexibility so that your practical fellowship will not be hindered, so that you won't alienate some Christians. These regulations, in summary, were proposed as wise guidelines to uphold unity, not necessities for salvation. Does that make sense? So, pretty soon... We're going to learn that these Gentile Christians in the letter, they accept this abstention, not begrudgingly, but with joy. They're really happy if you read on. We're not going to do it right now, but why are they so joyful about it? Because they're welcomed into the people of God. Because they get something so much better than the preference of their meat. I get something so much better than lamb tacos. I get to lay down my preferences so you and I can be unified and display the gospel that spans across cultures and languages and all kinds of other divisions that our world divides over. And so the Gentile Christians, they say, hey, we're, we're not gonna die on this hill to preserve unity in the church, to preserve our gospel witness. John Newton, he said that Paul modeled this really well. He says, Paul was a reed in the non-essentials and an iron pillar in the essentials. And we're invited to do the same. There are non-essential things that are important that we may disagree on, but we preserve unity with flexibility with one another. We don't have to agree on everything to be unified together as Christians. And this framework, what some people call, I want to introduce you to, is called theological triage. I know we got a fair amount of, who's like a medical person here? Like nurse, training, doctor, really? Wow, you got to be a little more proud than that. You guys are like, ee. we're thankful for you. Be proud, okay? So triage is something, if you showed up to a car wreck, if an EMT showed up to a multiple car pileup, and there would be different kinds of injuries, right? So if you saw someone with a bruised knee, someone with a broken leg, and someone that was bleeding out, triage means you're going to prioritize those things differently, So if an EMT went over to the bruised knee, the scraped knee person first, oh, are you okay? Let me patch you up. You'd be like, dude, what are you doing? There's someone bleeding out over here, right? There's a priority and an urgency in which we address issues. And it's the same thing when we have disagreements um, at different areas in the church. There are some things that are more important, more urgent, and some that are less. I have a diagram on the screen just to show what some of those things can be. Um, On the top, you have issues of first importance, the things that I talked about that we do not budge on as Christians, that we defend and this, the hill we die on, the, the deity of Christ, the need of his uh, substitution for our sin, lots of other things. To depart here is to, is to not be a Christian. This is, what, this, this is the essential of the gospel. And before you maybe object to this kind of category Uh, that I'm doing. I think Paul actually uses these at times. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, church, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. First importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So those are the kind of things, if we lose them, we lose the gospel. We don't budge on those. That's what unites us as Christians. So, but there are issues of second importance. Things that are, it's like uh, the guy with the broken leg. Hey, that's pretty important. I should probably get over and take care of you at some point, right? Things that are important for living a Christian life together. Uh, this could be uh, one example I'm actually going to talk about in a minute is, is how we view baptism. Um, these are things that we can disagree on, but have, and even maybe be in separate churches because of them, but we have unity and love together. And then third importance, uh, these are things that are, could be important, but not as clear not as um, urgent. So if you come up to me and you're like, hey man, pastor, what, are, what is RCC's stance on dinosaurs? I'm gonna be like, bro, we don't have a stance. Like, what do you think? Let's talk about it. I like dinosaurs, let's talk. But this doesn't really matter that much, right? Uh, what you view about, how you view, um, there are different views about the end times and when Jesus comes back. There are other issues that are not unimportant, but things that we don't address as urgently and things that we should not divide over, things that if we differ on, we should be in the church together. Bro, if you don't believe in dinosaurs, I'll happily be in church with you, even though I think you're wrong, uh, right? So we'll, we'll worship Jesus together. Let me, let me give you an example of how this has played out. Um, so I have a good friend. Uh, his name is Jerry. We met in uh, the biggest dude fest on the East Coast, is what we used to call it. It was a dorm at Virginia Tech, 1,000 guys, one building, smelled great, uh, as you can imagine. And he was on my hall. Jerry was a Christian. I was not, but we began a friendship. I became a Christian. We both worked in crew together, in local church ministry, and Jerry and I have, uh, we, I am more like Jesus, I'm a better pastor because of Jerry. Uh, Jerry's planning a church in Detroit, he's doing a lot of the stuff that we're doing here in Detroit, and he is uh, planning, we agree on almost everything except uh, he's a Presbyterian church planner, so he, we have a different view about baptism. Uh, Jerry thinks that, um, uh, believes in infant baptism, baptize infants, and I believe that we should baptize people in response to faith, right? Right? Um, so Jerry and I went on a um, went on a, a two or three day hiking trip um, on the AT on the Appalachian Trail, and I love this brother so dearly. And because of our deep love and unity together, on the first tier things, the things of first importance, we were able to have a lot of serious dispute, loving charitable dispute about from the scriptures, what do we believe baptism is, who should be baptized, how does that affect the church. Uh, We sat around the campfire, I mean, hours. And I was, man, in uh, love for him and unity for him, I was like, hey, man, come over to my side. This is where it's at, baby. I couldn't convince him. Yeah, yeah, I'm still working on him. And he was trying to convince me over to his side as well, right? But the cool thing is we loved each other and had charity the whole time. Uh, So much so that we could even joke around about it. And I think that actually, with that love and charity gives a foundation where we can even have some humor about our differences at times. Uh, We walked by a stream and I, Jerry, here's water, behold, why not be baptized, you know? Uh, I showed up to church the next day with my wife and my young daughter and he started getting out the, the sprinkling gear because he was like, oh, you finally came around. He started getting ready to sprinkle Selah. So Jerry and I probably would not plan a church together. But I can tell you, we are unified. I pray for this brother. I'm more like Jesus because of this brother. I'm a better pastor because of this brother. I pray for him a lot. I love him dearly. And I know we're going to be celebrating in heaven all the work that God has done through him and through me. And I really uh, just hope his church plan kills it, even though we disagree on this issue. That's somewhat, that's important. I love what Gavin Orlin, he wrote a great book, if you're interested in this topic a lot more, because we really just scratched the surface. It's called Finding the Right Hills to Die On. He says, pursuing the unity of the church does not mean that we should stop caring about theology. But it does mean that our love of theology should never exceed our love for real people. And therefore, we must learn to love people amid our theological disagreements. So Christians, we are like Paul. Reeds in the non-essentials, iron pillars in the gospel essentials. And this is hard for us. Americans, we we love our rights. We uh, We love our priority. We love our preferences. But defending the gospel means we can lay those things down to defend the gospel in unity together. And I love it because the flexibility of these Gentile Christians opened up a picture of the gospel that no one in the world had ever seen. Up until that point, Jews and Gentiles were not together. They were not a part of the same faith family. They didn't do life together. Even, even some of them that became, um, that, that worshipped at the temple they had to worship in separate places. And now you see a picture where they're at the dinner table together. They're calling one another their brother and sister. They're loving each other, sharing burdens, sharing needs, calling themselves family. That's the miraculous work of God, and that's what we long for in this city. People that shouldn't be together, worshiping together, at each other's dinner tables, not just calling each other family, but treating each other like family. So the question is not, will you disagree with other Christians? But when you disagree, will you fight to preserve the unity of the gospel? So one more, lastly, and quickly, last point, defending the gospel means defending gospel declaration this whole passage is filled with uh, declaring. Paul and Barnabas, verse 3, they describe the conversion of the Gentiles, and there's lots of joy. Uh, Verse 4, they declared all God had done. Verse 12, they related the signs and wonders that had been done among the Gentiles. Uh, They delivered the good news of the letter to these Gentile believers. Later, Judas and Silas are going to encourage and strengthen the church with many words. Paul and Barnabas, they're going to keep teaching, keep preaching. There's a lot of declaring going on in this short passage. And so it might seem odd to think about de- defending the gospel. One of the ways you do that is declaring the gospel, but it's kind of how that you know that uh, that phrase goes, right? The uh, what is it? The best offense is good defense. This will go the other way. You know what I mean, though, right? Yeah, help me out. <laughs> so, how do you think about this? How do you defend news? Because right, what, what we're protecting is news. It's good news. And Paul's saying, and they're they're exemplifying here. How do you preserve good news? Is you share it, you spread it. You take the gospel essentials that bring salvation, that bring great joy, that bring eternal joy for people, and you spread it, you share it generously. And as you do, the gospel marches forward, the kingdom goes forward. And that's what happens in the end of this passage. There's encouragement, there's strengthening. Paul and Barnabas start gearing up for their uh, second missionary journey. They're gonna start next week. And so we do that too, we share, we declare the gospel that's for everyone. Not to become like my culture, not to become like my language, not to become like my tradition, but to become like me and being a new creation, to be having my heart cleansed of its sin, having eternal life because of what Jesus has done. So the council shows us there is a hill worth dying on, and there are some that are not. And when it comes to the essentials of the gospel, Christian, we always die on that hill. We defend the gospel and we die on that hill because we do have good news that we need to preserve for people that there is a perfect Son of God that walked up a hill, that shed his blood and died for you on that hill to secure everlasting joy for you and anyone that would come to him. I love what Jesus says about the church. He actually says in Matthew 5, You, church, are a light of the world. You're a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And church, if we want to be a city that is on a hill where light is shining, we need to defend the clarity. We need to defend the unity and the declaration of the gospel. And man, it's hard, but it's worth it. Because when we defend the good news, it becomes a light drawing all the nations in this whole city to Jesus. Uh, I want to wrap up, um, doing something a little different. I want to pray for the unity of the church in our city. I want to pray for some other churches. And um, so would you bow your heads? I want to do that as I, as I wrap up here. Jesus, we praise you because you, you died, you gave your life to give us uh, the clarity of the gospel, the most life-changing news that we could ever know. And God, we lament that there are some that have still bear the name of Christian or church that have jettisoned or diluted that gospel at the eternal detriment of their souls and the souls of others. And God, I pray for those people that there would be repentance and turning to the true gospel and that where it is not repented and turned to the true gospel, that uh, that that, uh, false gospel, that diluted gospel would disperse. And Jesus, you also died for the unity of your bride, for one pure unified bride. And God, we just lament that there are so many ways in which uh, there have been unnecessary fractures, unnecessary uh, lack of love and charity and God, we repent and, and even uh, confess that there are ways that we have not done that well, that we have not been as charitable or as loving, as flexible as we need to be. And so God, would you help us, uh, provide for us the, the, the love, the unity, the motivation to see the unity of the gospel. And I want to pray for so many churches in our city that, that do preach the gospel. Uh, I pray for Gallery and for Haven City, for Abbott Memorial, for the Garden, for Jesus our Redeemer, for... Harris Creek, for The Mix, for Epic, for Freedom Church, for Renaissance Church, for St. Moe's, for Canton Baptist, and so many that I haven't named, God, here. God, I pray for those churches. Would you give them unity within their churches that display the power of the risen Christ at work in them, drawing many to themselves. And I pray for our city that our city would be full of churches that disagree on some issues but come together to support one another, to love one another, to pray for one another, to sacrifice for one another to cheerlead for one another, to rejoice when they grow and maybe we stay the same because the gospel is going forward in the kingdom. It's at work. And so we pray for your kingdom to come in this city. May it be in Baltimore as it is in heaven and use each of these churches, God, to be a tool of grace, bringing that in for your glory, not for ours. That's in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church podcast.